You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. I'm sitting here today with an old friend, Thomas Quiggin a former military intelligence officer with the Canadian military uh, who uh, served in the Balkans during the 1990s. That'll be the topic of our discussion today. And after leaving the military, uh, went on to have a career in intelligence, uh, war crimes, and terrorism, though not as a terrorist, as far as I know. Uh, So, Tom Quiggan, thanks for sitting down with the International Spy Museum. It's fun to be here. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, So today we're going to talk about uh, the war in Bosnia and intelligence in the war in Bosnia and some of your experiences there. Uh, But I rather suspect that uh, many people these days don't really have strong recollections of the war in Bosnia. Do you want to just give us the the 25-cent overview of when that war was and what was going on in Bosnia that was so important? Well, the war in Bosnia was part of a larger breakup of the former country of Yugoslavia itself, and I guess the direct war sort of ran from 1991 to 1995. In Bosnia, uh, not only was the war part of the breakup of Yugoslavia, but it was also fighting between Serbia and Croatia to determine who would control most of Bosnia, and it's not inconsiderable resources. There was also a lot of history involved in the sense a lot of people were trying to right the wrongs of World War II or finish the unfinished business of World War II. A lot of the locals were quite upset with the idea that World War II redrew the boundaries of Europe with the Germans in Germany, the French in France, etc., etc., but yet it left the populations in Yugoslavia quite mixed, so they were determined to straighten that out too. In other words, lots of ethnic cleansing. Uh, Yugoslavia was also one of the symptoms of the breakup of uh, the Soviet Union and uh, the end of the Cold War. Uh, Previously, Yugoslavia had been sort of a useful country for everyone as a buffer zone between the Soviet uh, Union and uh, the rest of Western Europe. Uh, And all of a sudden, that reason's gone. Also, Bosnia was there to save uh, NATO, or at least that was the joke amongst the troops on the ground, uh, that NATO no no longer really had a reason to exist after the Cold War, at least a lot of people believed that. But all of a sudden along comes Bosnia, uh, so the joke was, there we are, Uh, Bosnia is now there to save NATO, to give it a reason to exist. To say it was complex, some of an understatement. So the United Nations ended up operating uh, a United Nations Protection Force, or UNPROFOR, a peacekeeping force in Bosnia. 
uh, as well. Um, and if I understand correctly, you were sent by the Canadian military to be part of of a cell that they had actually in, in the country next door in Zagreb, Croatia. Is that right? Yes, the United Nations had initially got involved in uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia and Croatia uh, as part of a protection force to try and demilitarize and control the breakup of Croatia. Uh, that mission then suffered from a horrendous case of mission creep. Uh, so, of course, it went from Croatia into Bosnia and eventually found its way down into Macedonia, Kosovo, etc., etc. Uh, the UN, uh, as was I guess most people may be uh, aware at the time, the UN has a pathological loathing of the term intelligence uh, and is deeply ingrained into many of its senior staff, especially its civilian staff. Uh, so we didn't actually have an intelligence cell, we had a military information office, uh, which of course to, uh, to the experienced eye looked a lot like an intelligence office. Uh, we ran uh, that office with about 12 to 15 people on any given day, uh, mostly from Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Sweden, uh, Denmark, and France. Uh, I think you may have mentioned to me earlier that there was also a Russian in the office, is that right? We had a, a series of uh, revolving uh, postings, I guess, that went through there. Uh, and on any given day, you could also find a Russian, a Jordanian, a Kenyan, uh, uh, we had a Swiss military officer come through the odd time, which was quite, quite unusual and quite, uh, quite an experience. Uh, so yeah, we had quite the quite the collection. Uh, the Russian was an interesting guy in that he was a former uh, signals intelligence officer from Bear Aircraft and spoke flawless. East Coast American English. I wonder how that happened. Probably a bit of training. <laughs> yeah. uh, but a uh, great guy to have around, some great insights. And of course, the uh, the Russians have a traditional long-standing relationship with, uh, with the rest of the Slavic people, obviously, uh, and perhaps a little deeper and better understanding of what was going on in Yugoslavia than a few of the outsiders. He was also able to provide good, con uh, good contacts into the Serbian side, which we had a hard time generating on occasion because we were located in Croatia. So, uh, would it be fair to say, though, that probably the backbone of this office was Canadians, Americans, and Brits? Um, there was a lot of the sort of three eyes and or NATO kind of approach doing things. There's that long-standing traditional uh, can-UK-US community, which just sort of almost instinctively works whenever it's put together. Uh, and then the, the greatest chunk of the, uh, the rest of them were... Uh, uh, from Norway and Sweden, who are sort of well integrated into the uh, Western European theater anyway. And the Swedes, notwithstanding their neutrality, actually run a very aggressive military and highly, highly versed in understanding how NATO works and how the UN works. So they're sort of an asset most of the time as well. So what was this military information cell, which was an intelligence cell by a different name, as you note, what, were, what was it actually doing? What were its responsibilities and how did it function? Uh, it was a pretty classic uh, sort of essentially a core level intelligence uh, office. The the mission at the time had about 50,000 people working for it, all told, between the, the, the military overall, and civilian. The overall mission. Peacekeeping and, mission. Yeah. And we had responsibilities that ran from Slovenia and Croatia uh, down into Bosnia, also some operations going on in Serbia, uh, and a fairly strong operation in Macedonia as well. Uh, so it was run sort of at a core level uh, kind of operation. We were responsible for things like ORBATS, the Order of Battle, 
who had what military equipment where, who was the commander, who did he respond to, that sort of stuff. And that, if I could just interrupt you there, that was probably fairly complicated work because there were a lot of different armed factions running around Bosnia all fighting each other uh, and, and coming and going, right? Yeah, in, in Bosnia itself, on any given day, there were about five main factions that we could identify. All engaged, engaged in hostilities. All engaged in trying to kill each other in various ways at various times. Uh, on any given day in Sarajevo, in order to actually understand what was going on around the airport, you're looking at as many as 15 or 16 different factions and sub-factions, uh, which had things like artillery and tanks that could actually affect outcomes. Uh, so to say it was complex, somewhat of an understatement as well. Uh, we also did a lot of capabilities and intentions work. Uh, who had what capabilities, what they were trying to do, classic intelligence stuff. We did indicators and warnings work, uh, trying to look at what signals we could see, uh, which would then result in activities two or three or four days down the road. Uh, a lot of it was political in the sense that, uh, and this, this went against the will of many of our commanders, uh, but in order to understand what's going on in Croatia, Bosnia, and Macedonia, you have to understand the politics of it. And the politics, and of course the military, they're thoroughly ingrained with each other. Uh, one of the problems we had was a lot of the commanders, of course, were NATO trained or trained at NATO staff colleges, and they believed in high-intensity combat and warfare. They'd been uh, preparing to fight World War III against the Soviet Union. Yeah, they were all set to head off to the Fulda Gap, uh, and they were utterly and completely unprepared to get involved in a mess like Yugoslavia where politics was everything. So that was one of the things we spent a lot of time doing was trying to retrain and re-educate a lot of senior commanders, especially outside of the theater, uh, that simply bombing something out of existence uh, was somehow going to help us. Uh, there was also the uh, there was air support and air strikes uh, going on at the time. Uh, that was the first time that NATO and the UN agreed to get together on airstrikes. Uh, so trying to provide intelligence support for the airstrikes as they were occurring, in other words, what to actually target, what was in the area, and then more importantly, what would be the fallout of an airstrike. You don't mean fallout literally in a nuclear not, sense. Not, not in that sense of the yeah. term. No. The political and military fallout from airstrikes was quite significant because they were highly politicized as well. Uh, so it was a matter of trying to provide real-time, as it happens, intelligence to the force commander uh, at a time when the aircraft uh, had already gone wheels up in Italy on its way over. Uh, so needless to say, this stuff was happening in a matter of minutes. Uh, We've got an aircraft in the air. It's going to drop its bombs somewhere. You need to figure out where that's going to happen. Yeah, and what will what will be the effect you, when it happens. And you need to do it right now. Yeah. So the whole idea of, you know, I listen to people go on about collection efforts and, you know, times and all this sort of stuff. The reality is a lot of time as an intelligence officer, you're stuck making on-the-spot assessments based on the experience and knowledge you've developed to base, and that has to be really fine-grained, granular kind of intelligence. Yet at the same time, you have to understand what NATO and the UN are doing to each other in New York and Brussels. Uh, so it's uh, complex to say the least, but it was it was interesting. It was a lot of fun, that's for sure. So where does where did the United Nations forces unperform that you were attached to get its raw intelligence information? Where did it get its basic reports that was the input to all this order of battle analysis and other things that, that you guys were doing in Zagreb? We were reasonably fortunate in that sense that... Uh, we had a fairly good collection effort. There was, uh, first off, there was the daily reporting from the various sectors, so sector north, sector south in Croatia. So where various, there were UN battalions yeah. from various con contributing nations, they'd send in daily reports on what's happening in their area? 
Yeah, we'd get uh, reports from the various UN battalions in their sectors. Uh, sometimes we get it raw from the battalions themselves. Sometimes it'd be filtered through a sector level uh, command. And that used to provide some fairly good insight into what was going on. Uh, Within the uh, within part of that military information office, we did intelligence sharing through what's commonly known as the CAN UK US or the Three Eyes community. So that was going on. We were able to, over a period of time, develop- actually. Can I bring you back to that? So does yeah. that mean then that that intelligence information might have been flowing from Washington, from Ottawa, from London? into that cell and it would be shared laterally among the, the, the Canadians, the Americans, and, and, and the Brits? Is that what you mean there? Yes. Uh, we'd go back to our own national-level authorities who would filter stuff to us either directly or sometimes through our national-level commands uh, in the theater itself. Uh, so that was quite uh, useful. It also put a number of intelligence officers from a number, number of countries in very strange positions where you'd literally walk around the building or go downrange with uh, sort of like United Nations intelligence in one pocket, NATO intelligence in another pocket, your own national command intelligence in another pocket, and your, your sort of can UK US intelligence in another pocket. Uh, and we had fairly strict uh, directions from the commander of the military information office that if in doubt we were to share the intelligence, if lives were at stake or if the mission itself was uh, being questioned. So we did a lot of sort of uh, shall we say, informal and impromptu intelligence declassification uh, while on the run, uh, attempting to help folks. Um, fortunately, we were well protected, I think, in that case by a couple of very senior commanders, one in UCOM uh, and one in the uh, within the force itself, who said, you know, use your best judgment on the scene if it means weakening the classification rules, so we say, in order to share it, go ahead and do that first, and then worry about the consequences later, and we'll back you up. Much to my surprise, I found out that we actually did have a couple of commanders in the chain of command who would back their troops on the ground when trying to do the right thing in an actual sort of combat situation or a conflict situation. Were you guys doing any form of uh, human intelligence, either overt human intelligence or, you know, re recruiting and running agents and any, anything of, of this nature? Or I don't, I don't think we'd have sort of called it that for, for reasons uh, that would have offended both uh, the UN, NATO, and our own national commands. However, we did develop a number of personal working relationships, uh, especially with non-governmental organizations and aid agencies who had people on the ground all over the place. Uh, folks tend to forget that a lot of the uh, truck drivers and the logistics people and that for things like the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees or for a number of private uh, NGOs, a lot of these guys are ex-military. So, the, uh, so the, the, the organizations, without naming any names because we don't want to cast any aspersions, but the organizations, the international organizations that provide aid and relief and medical supplies in, in troubled areas... We're, we're bringing those things in, and they have to hire truck drivers to bring their, their, their medical equipment, their food, etc. in, and those people knew what to, look, what to look for. Yeah, many cases they were ex-military, or they'd been doing it for quite a while anyway, and they were smart enough to say, look, we drive down this road every week, so we know what's going on, and yet we drove down this road this week, and we saw a bunch of guys digging in artillery pieces, which weren't there last week. So they would mention that to us, and that was sort of useful on-the-ground uh, intelligence. We also had battalion commanders from the various uh, countries uh, who would be meeting the local mayor, the local police chief, the local military commander, 
just in their normal day-to-day duties uh, and on occasion you know we drop in to talk to them and ask them what their observations and insights were uh, so yeah we did develop a, a sort of complex but nonetheless informal series of human uh, human contacts who could provide insight so even though uh, UNPROFOR, the United Nations Protection Force, and your milita- military information cell was headquartered in Zagreb, you were traveling in and out of Bosnia um, fairly frequently. Is that right? Yeah, we were quite frequently downrange in Croatia itself, sector north, sector south, sector east, sector west, also into Bosnia. On occasion, we'd send guys down into Macedonia. Uh, I was in Serbia once in Belgrade uh, working with the uh, head of civil affairs. So yeah, we used to get around a little bit, and those I think those trips provided huge insight. Um, for those people that have never done it, I mean, it's one thing to be an analyst and to work on a, any given situation, be it a country or a region or, or a specific war or whatever. It's another thing to spend 15 minutes on the war zone. One of the most brutal kind of lessons of my life was the first day I spent in the former Yugoslavia. Having worked as a national level analyst for, by that point, over three years, I had a certain picture in my mind of what the war would look like. Uh, my first day to day and a half on the ground really recalibrated that, shall we say, politically. What do you, what do you and mean I had by an that? entirely different view. Well, I expected Yugoslavia, based on the media reporting and based on our military reporting, whatever, to be a country at war. But yet, when I landed in Zagreb, Croatia, which the airport is interestingly enough within artillery range of some Serb outfits. I expected to see like blackout lighting. I expected to see posters up saying "Support the war and death to the enemy" and all this sort of stuff. Zagreb itself, other than there was too many military guys kind of walking around in strange foreign uniforms, uh, you couldn't tell there was a war on. The street lights were on. Everybody was out. Uh, there was no posters up. There was no national advertising. That kind of stuff. Uh, but yet, uh, you could go driving through the countryside, everything would look perfect. You'd come around a corner, and then it was just like absolute devastation. Villages that were like five feet high uh, because they'd been hammered out of existence by uh, artillery and uh, 20 millimeter cannon fire. So it was, uh, it was kind of bizarre in that sense that the war didn't look like uh, a lot of us thought it was going to. And uh, this is a common experience for a lot of guys. And was that true in Bosnia as well, or did it feel much more like a place that was at war? Bosnia was the same way. You could drive through the countryside, and uh, it's it's rather stunning, actually. Parts of the country are quite beautiful. Um, and then you literally come around a corner, and you'll find one village that looks perfect. You go a kilometer down the road, and just absolute sheer devastation. Uh, and that contrast between the sort of beauty of one moment and the devastation of another sort of messes with your mind after a while as well. So, Highly localized warfare. So when you're traveling, you're, what, getting in a Land Rover with a driver and just driving off alone and unafraid? Or how does this work? You got a Land Rover in the UN if you happen to be a general or a ambassador or happen to have good connections. Uh, the rest of us were driving around in... Uh, Toyota Corollas, uh, Toyota 4Runners, uh, K5 Blazers, that kind of thing. Uh, soft skin vehicles for the most part, most of the Soft time. skin meaning not armored. If somebody shoots at you, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah, no armor whatsoever other than body armor. That was it. Did you ever get shot at? Directly, no. I don't think so. Were there ever times when you feared for your safety? Uh, repeatedly, yeah. As much as IEDs were the story of sort of Iraq and Afghanistan, in Yugoslavia it was landmines. That was kind of the big thing. So I remember driving down the road at 3 o'clock in the morning once with my driver in the pouring rain, 
water washing down off the mountain and we're trying to drive over the rocks that have washed onto the road and of course some of the rocks are rocks and some of them are landmines. Uh, so that tends to make it very uh, exciting. So you're living on cans of coke and Mars bars uh, while staring out the window trying to determine what you should run over and what you should not. Um, another thing that I was told uh, during training was that in, terms, in times of conflict it's not the professionals you should be worried about. It's the amateurs that are going to get you killed. And I never understood that. I always thought a well-trained soldier would be your greatest fear on the other side or opposing you. Until I came around a corner one day, my driver and I ran into a checkpoint, which was expected. Uh, we drove up to the checkpoint and did what we always do, which was make sure we hand a cigarette out the window to the guy. Why, why give them a cigarette? Uh, first thing, when you hand somebody a cigarette there, and of course everybody in Yugoslavia smokes as long as they're more than 10 years old, uh, when you hand somebody a cigarette, if the guy takes it, he usually takes the cigarette in his hand that he would normally operate the trigger mechanism on his rifle. So if his hand is holding a cigarette, it's not near the trigger of his gun. Precisely. Uh, if things look like they're getting into a bit of a discussion, we also used to keep cans of Coke on the dashboard and Mars bars under the seat. Uh, and if the discussion looked like it might be extensive or difficult, then pulling out the cans of Coke, because uh, then the guy has to cradle his rifle with both hands while he holds the can with one uh, with his left hand and opens it with his right hand sort of a thing. Uh, so that was just a way of buying a little bit of uh, goodwill, a, a bit of a negotiating tactic, and it also bought you an extra couple of seconds uh, should things go wrong. Now, you ran into a dangerous amateur, though, at one of these checkpoints. Yeah, we stopped at a checkpoint one day, and uh, it was kind of the normal thing. Uh, there's a guy standing literally in front of the truck pointing a rifle at you. There's the guy you're talking to out the window, and everything is going fine. We're showing identification. We're talking. Uh, my driver's job was to engage, obviously, the guy at his window and keep an eye on that sort of quarter. My job was to sort of keep a little larger view of what's going around. So as I sort of scan around, I realize not only is there a guy in front of us uh, with the proverbial AK, which is bad enough, but about 15 to 20 meters off to my right at about 1 or 2 o'clock, there's a kid standing there who can't be more than 18 years old. He's got a PKM, which is a belt-fed Soviet-made machine gun. And he's kind of wavering back and forth and staggering a bit. And I think, well, what's wrong with this guy? And I look, and it's Nunar. He's dead drunk. Uh, so here you are sort of standing here in rather a tense situation anyway with people that don't like you. And I look over and I can see he's got his hand on the trigger mechanism of a PKM and he's dead drunk. That's when the lesson hit me. It's not the professionals that are going to get you. It's the amateur that's going to get you killed. That would have gotten my attention, I'll tell you. You had you've told me some interesting stories off mic about uh, about uh, a commander of a Pakistani unit, and also about your uh, encounter with some of the uh, uh, the so-called Arab mujahideen. Do you want to just give, give us some local color here before we focus in on a little more specifically on some of the roles of intelligence uh, in the war in Bosnia? Yeah. Some of the stuff that happened over there had a real Rick's Cafe kind of feeling about the whole thing. And you sometimes wondered if this was a Hollywood movie set that had gone completely wrong as opposed to an actual war. At one point, we received a briefing saying that there were known to be Arab Mujahideen coming into the theater to operate. And we'd seen the Iranians up front, obviously not Arabs. Uh, and then following that, we actually started to see uh, Arab Mujahideen moving into the conflict zone. 
We were told it was easy to spot them because they'd be Arab-looking, sort of, you know, dark skin, black hair kind of thing. Uh, they favored sort of a paramilitary kind of clothing, and I thought, okay, well, that makes a certain amount of sense. They'd be young, hard-looking guys, and it's like, well, okay, all soldiers are young. That makes sense. And that they would be wearing really fancy, high-end uh, running shoes, like Nike Air running shoes, but the really expensive ones. And at the time we were briefed that, I actually stifled myself and didn't laugh out loud because I thought the guy telling me this was a complete idiot. However, uh, living in the uh, living in Zagreb as I did in a, a really bad hotel, a uh, Turista B-class hotel, the Hotel Panorama, uh, the hotel was filled with UN guys like me, uh, refugees, uh, gun runners from Naples, all kinds of strange people. I came down the elevator one day it opens into the lobby. I walk out wearing my, you know, green uniform, my little nine millimeter and all this kind of stuff. And I see a bunch of guys standing in the lobby, about 12 of them. They're young. They're hard. They're fit looking guys. They've got olive skin. They've got dark hair. They're all wearing this kind of paramilitary clothing. And I look down and, oh my God, all 12 of them are wearing high-end Nike Air kind of looking running shoes. And I literally had to stifle myself and just walked right by them, went to see the, uh, the head of the intelligence cell and said, I think we got 12 of our friends staying at the hotel. And sure enough, they were. How about the Pakistani battalion? Well, the United Nations has a rather complex and perhaps not necessarily completely useful set of rules of engagement on how one should behave. And, of course, a set of uh, diplomatic and uh, civil affairs rules on how you're supposed to engage yourself with the local mayor, the local police chief, the local military commander, the local vice president, whatever. We discovered that the, when the Pakistani battalion arrived, uh, their zone of operations went relatively quiet. Uh, no fighting, no killing, etc., etc. We discovered what it was, was the Pakistani battalion had been up operating in northern Pakistan, uh, had come down out of there and then was moved into Bosnia very quickly. The battalion commander was not only the battalion commander, he was also the uncle of, the brother of, or the cousin of a bunch of people in the battalion. It was a very tribally formed uh, battalion. So he had gone around, apparently, to the local mayors, the local police chief, and explained this to these people, saying, not only am I the battalion commander, but I am the father of many of these people in, in the tribal sense of the term, and I'm responsible for their health. So if something happens to them, I have to go back and explain to their cousins, their uncles, and the brothers what happened. And he said, I don't want to have to do that. So he said, here's the story. We're all going to get along peacefully, or I will personally come back and kill you. And he would tell this to various folks around. And surprising enough, it worked rather well. Uh, the war in Bosnia itself was kind of tribal. Uh, folks got that message very clearly, and it was something they were able to work with and understand. So peace broke out in his area for the time that he was there. Uh, a very effective way of doing things, although perhaps not politically correct. Yeah, the UN, I don't think, would have approved of that. No, it's not sort of... Uh, sheer vengeance is not always, uh, you know, sort of a, a good form of... Uh, diplomacy. But in certain areas, when you're dealing with a tribal kind of conflict, perhaps a tribal approach is not a bad one. Now, I believe, and I stand ready to be corrected here, but I believe that the first time that NATO forces fired shots in anger, at least as far as is publicly known, it was a Danish tank unit, if I understand correctly. And there's a bit of an intelligence backstory to this, or a military information backstory to this. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, the only uh, outfit that was operating heavy armor on the ground there that wasn't a local combatant 
uh, were the Danes. They had actually brought some leopard tanks along with them. Uh, the closest thing to that was Canadians had also brought some uh, engineering vehicles based on leopard tanks, but they weren't actually tanks. So the Danes are the only guys there with uh, tanks on the ground that are working for the UN. Uh, the Serbs in, in the Tuzla area, just south of the Tuzla area, had a nasty habit of dropping... But in Bosnia. In Bosnia itself, okay. yeah. Uh, the Serbs had a nasty habit of dropping artillery rounds on uh, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugee convoys that were in food supply uh, from the Tuzla airport into the city of Tuzla itself. And of course, we would protest this and say, would you, please put would you please quit shelling these convoys? And the Serbs kept saying, well, it's not us. We have no control over it. We don't know what you're talking about. It must be those crazy Muslims bombing themselves in order to get, you know, good publicity. Or maybe the evil Croats have, you know, snuck an artillery piece in and they're doing it. And we knew it was absolute nonsense. But at any rate, uh, one of the few useful things that NATO actually did for us there was to provide imagery uh, through one of their systems. And we were able to get a good look at the site where the Serb artillery had dug themselves into the backside of a hill. From which they were From which they were then firing up over the hill and down onto the road at a distance of some kilometers. Uh, we were able to pass this information on to the Danes and able to identify through basic terrain analysis, told the Danes, if you guys move your tanks into this area, you'll be close enough to engage them, uh, but far enough away to be uh, relatively safe should you decide to shoot and scoop. So the Danes moved their tanks in, dug them in. Sure enough, the Serbs moved their artillery exactly back into the same site they always dug it in, waited for the aircraft to land, and then once the convoy started to move, in came the artillery shells. So we did the standard thing. We phoned up the Serbs and protested and said, please quit shelling the convoy. And they said, it's not us. And we said, are you absolutely sure? And they said, yes. And we said, fine, then you're not going to mind what's going to happen. Uh, the Danes opened up and each of the three tanks they had dumped 40 rounds into the uh, artillery site in apparently in a little bit less than three minutes. Uh, and of course that brought the, uh, the entire operation to a crashing halt. Uh, but that was useful because it demonstrated that imagery intelligence, useful, as, as everybody sort of suspects it was, integrated with a good political understanding of the area, integrated with basic intelligence work, which is terrain analysis, weapon analysis, uh, ability to determine the range of engagement for various uh, tanks, artillery, etc., etc. All of this went together uh, into an operation that went off quite flawlessly and sent a good message to the Serbs saying, kindly stop doing that or we're going to hammer you. Uh, surprisingly enough, they stopped doing it for months. What was the Srebrenica massacre? Srebrenica massacre is one of the huge black eyes on the UN. Uh, Srebrenica was one of the so-called safe zones uh, in after Bosnia. in Bosnia. Uh, after Garajdi, another one of the so-called safe areas, had been overrun in about April of 1994. Uh, the head of the mission, uh, Yasushi Akashi, put out this sort of order to us and said, "What are the safe areas? How did they get formed?" Where are they geographically? We know it's like Srebrenica, but what does that mean? Does that mean just the town itself? Does that mean the county? Does it mean what? So then he goes, what, what, what's in the area? Like, what military forces are there? And he goes, if it's supposed to be safe, who are we protecting and what are we protecting them from? And do we have sufficient forces on the ground to protect them should they be attacked? Uh, so we did a fairly extensive study on Srebrenica, Zeppa, Bihach, uh, were the three main safe areas that were still outstanding, and Tuzla as well, I think. Um, and in Srebrenica in particular, we wrote a specific one and said, look, Srebrenica is in trouble. Nobody wants it there. Uh, the Serbs really hate it. They want to get rid of it. The Muslims who are controlling because it's it. A, because it's a Bosnian-Muslim Bosnian town. Because it's a Bosnian-Muslim controlled town. 
the guy who is controlling it, Nasser Orich, is an organized crime figure, and he's just using his control there to extort money from the local Bosnian Muslims. Uh, he doesn't really care. The Bosnian Muslim government wanted to use it as a sacrifice uh, in order to gain sympathy for their cause. NATO wanted to get rid of the safe areas because it was interfering with their bombing program. Uh, and the headquarters in New York didn't know, didn't care, completely removed. So we put together a fairly extensive report on this that was political analysis, train analysis, military analysis, and everything, and said, look, at the end of the day, Srebrenica's for the high jump. This place is going to get wiped out because nobody has an interest in maintaining it, and nobody has an interest in even trying to defend it. And the, uh, the forces that are there are completely incapable of responding should anything happen. So this all went to the United Nations uh, headquarters in New York to Kofi Annan, who at the time was head of the DPKO, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. He later went on to become Secretary General of yep. the United Nations. Who at that time was in the running to be Secretary General of the United Nations and in fact did become Secretary General of the United Nations. The report was met with stunning silence. We heard nothing back. Uh, so notwithstanding the fact we sent in a report saying all these people are going to be killed and wiped out, so nothing happened. So a little while later, we actually had someone, one of our political officers was in New York. So he said, while you're there, go to DPKO and ask him, like, what do they think? What do they want us to do about this safe area mess? He came back and said, basically, the answer is there is no answer. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to deal with it, etc., etc." Remembering, of course, what's going on at that same time is Rwanda. The genocide in Rwanda is ongoing. And after the fact, we realized what it was, was Kofi Annan head of peacekeeping operations, was running or was in the running for Secretary General of the United Nations and he had agreed with the major powers not to get them involved in any entanglements that would actually involve fighting, uh, real honest to God, military operations. So he had totally shut down all the reporting on Rwanda uh, and wouldn't let any of uh, General Dallaire's reports float their way up to the Security Council like it should have. And anything that was coming out of Yugoslavia that looked like it might entail having to make an actual decision uh, was of course being stifled. Uh, so, I mean, Kofi Annan goes on to be head of uh, head of the United Nations and gets a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, from the point of view of those of us on the ground that were involved in it, we really thought he should have wound up at the Hague at the War Crimes Tribunal. So, you and your colleagues warned the United Nations that the Bosnian Muslim safe area at Srebrenica was going to be overrun, was going to be wiped out, and what in fact ha actually happened. Uh, it was overrun and pretty much wiped out. And by wiped uh, out, you mean several thousand people died uh, in the in the uh, event. We didn't know how many people would die. Uh, now you don't mean soldiers here. You mean civilians. These right? are civilians. Yeah, these are the the, the population of uh, Srebrenica was massacred. Uh, no one's exactly sure on the numbers. The low end runs from 3,500 to 5,000. The high end runs to around 8,000. But they were literally lined up against walls, lined up against barns, shot and buried in large pits. So it's sort of, uh, it's, the sort of thing we saw the Nazis do in World War II. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is real honest to God. When you see the pictures of it, uh, especially if the pictures are sort of been put into black and white, you would swear this is World War II. It's a bunch of people, you know, lying in bodies piled up in huge piles. Uh, pictures of, you know, barns and whatever, all full of bullet holes, whatever, because the people are lined up against the walls and shot. So this is the kind of stuff uh, that one associates with World War II or sort of far-off third-world foreign countries where no one ever goes. Uh, but yet, in fact, it's occurring in the heart of Europe uh, four to five years after the war has started, with the full knowledge ahead of time that this was going to happen, but yet the politics of it was such nobody wanted to deal with it, so it just happened. That must have been really frustrating, and I can imagine that 
that your you and your colleagues in the military information cell must have been pretty angry and probably maybe depressed about this too. It, to see this thing that you'd warned about unfold in this, as you say, black mark on on you know modern European history. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty stunning. One of the things I mean, one of the, at the end of the day, you ask, I mean, what was the United Nations doing in Bosnia? Uh, we used to believe after we've been there for a while that our role was to keep the war off the TV screens of the advanced Western democracies. That was the role of the United Nations. So if things were relatively quiet in Bosnia and there weren't any large killings. Uh, then we didn't get hassled by the national authorities. We never heard from them. Like in London or Washington. London, Washington, Ottawa, Paris, Berlin, whatever. Uh, however, if stuff started to go wrong and people were getting killed, we would see two things happen. On one side, we would see the national level spokesmen, be they prime ministers, presidents, or ministers of defense, a minister of state or whatever. They would be on TV hammering the table, demanding that the UN take stronger action, that we get in there and sort these problems out and start this killing. And then we would literally the next day, we would see a trail of limousines showing up at the UN headquarters from various ambassadors explaining why the UN must take very strong action, but not using troops from their country. There were to be no risks taken by American troops, Danish troops, Swedish troops, Canadian troops, whatever. Uh, so the, the stunning hypocrisy of the politicians, uh, on the one hand, blaming the United Nations for not doing anything, and then the next day, literally undercutting the mission, telling it it can't use any of the, the national forces at its disposal, uh, was, was quite stunning. And then to see that eventually result in the massacres at Srebrenica and stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's a real lesson in politics that, you know, wasn't really nice. <laughs> There's so much we could talk about uh, with the uh, with the war in Bosnia, but maybe let's just just close with this. Um, you're a big believer, I think, that intelligence in really complex situations like the war in Bosnia, uh, or dare I say it, in, in counterinsurgency operations, perhaps, uh, which are very much in the news uh, in recent years, need to be really sort of fine grained, on the ground stuff. Uh, you, you told me about, for instance, the, the complexities of the situation in, in Bihać, uh, which is a city uh, in northern Bosnia, if I recall correctly, and, and, and how it was really difficult to untangle what was going on there. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what it sort of used as a case study? What, what did a military information officer looking at Bosnia really need to know in order to actually understand what was going on uh, in, in any given area? Yeah, in order to work in any kind of uh, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, that sort of operation, the the detail, uh, the devil is in the details, I guess folks always say. Uh, so, in order to understand what was happening in the city of Bihać, for instance, you had to look at multiple factions. So, the city was nominally uh, a Bosnian Muslim city. Uh, but it was under attack from the north from another Bosnian Muslim who'd split off and decided uh, to start his own little country, uh, which he effectively did, a fellow by the name of Abdich. So you've got Bosnian Muslims hammering away at Bosnian Muslims. Then on the one side, they're surrounded by Bosnian Serbs. On the other side, they're surrounded by Croatian Serbs. Uh, and on top of that, they've sort of got the Croatian Croatians uh, controlling access to the area. So just trying to identify the factions, of course, is complex as hell. Uh, then we had NATO kept showing up. They wanted to bomb, uh, bomb this and bomb that, and they were going to solve all the problems by coming in and bombing everything, which was kind of NATO's approach was to, you know, bomb everything as long as NATO didn't actually have to put anybody on the ground uh, to, to suffer the consequences. 
So we try and explain to them that bombing supply lines there was a bit difficult because Abditch, uh, the Bosnian Muslim guy, got his supplies through Bosnian Serb territory, which had originally come from Kraina or Croatian Serb territory, which came from Croatian territory, and most of the supplies originated from the town of Zagreb themselves. Uh, so a Bosnian Muslim was paying off Bosnian Serbs, Kraina Serbs, and Croatian Croatians in order to get his supplies so he could bomb other Bosnian Muslims. So the Bosnian Muslims, or one of the Bosnian Muslim factions was in essence being supplied with the cooperation of one of its enemies. Yes. Uh, and this brings about, How does this make any sense? It makes perfect sense, uh, as long as you're not trained by NATO and don't believe in high-intensity warfare. Um, with the Balkans and with a lot of other countries, uh, I think the same thing sort of observed in Iraq, Afghanistan, the same thing if you try to identify what various al-Qaeda factions are doing in the Maghreb or in the Middle East or whatever. War is war, friends are friends, and business is business. And those are three entirely separate concepts. Uh, you can be at war with the guys down the road based on your differences in politics or religion or geography or whatever. You can do business with the guy down the road as long as he's paying you in hard currency, which in this case was Deutschmarks at the time. Uh, and you can be friends with the guy down the road because you used to go to school with his sister. Uh, so in Yugoslavia, you had varying factional commanders who knew each other because they grew up in the same town going to the same school, and this guy is married to that guy's sister, and this guy is married to the brother of the guy who's the uncle of the cousin guy down the road. So you could actually hear them on their various military command networks addressing each other across enemy lines and laughing and saying, oh yeah, we're going to bomb your village tomorrow at noon. Uh, I suggest you're not in the uh, the town hall because we're going to blow it up. Ha ha, isn't this funny? Um, so yeah, we, we, we were found, found ourselves very quickly in a, in a situation of complexity that just goes beyond belief. Uh, additionally, I mean, in order to understand what the Serbs believed, you have to understand the, bottle, the Battle of Kosovo Polje, which if you listen to them had occurred about six weeks ago, but in reality it occurred in 1389. But history to them is a living force. Uh, World War II was like yesterday and World War I was the day before yesterday. In order to be effective as an intelligence officer in that kind of operation, you have to sort of understand NATO and how militaries are run by NATO. You have to understand counterinsurgencies and how militaries are run by guys like Tito, who actually are good at counterinsurgency, and unlike NATO, which really sucks at it. Um, you have to understand the local history and how that affects the local politics and how that affects and everything else. So one of the greatest weaknesses of the UN mission there, and then NATO just came along and compounded it even worse, is we rotate guys through on six months or a year basis. Um, I'd spent three years ahead of time reading everything I could and had a fairly good background, let's say, in the NATO stuff and the history stuff. Uh, by the time I'd been on the ground for six months, I actually had a... I wouldn't say a good understanding of the conflict, but perhaps I was less ignorant than some. You were starting to get it. I was starting to really get it, get a real focus on how this worked, and we could tell that when something happened over here, you could tell a week later something would happen over there. So we actually got that. Uh, we were just getting there. And then, of course, you're rotated back out, uh, back out of the real world, and there you go. You go from, you know, uh, Sector North or something in the morning, and you're in, uh, uh, you know, Schiphol Airport that afternoon, and then you're back home. Uh, which is a real mind messer as well, by the way. But anyway, but no, uh, in order to be effective at anything 
any kind of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, granular intelligence at the local level is absolutely critical. And you can only get that by starting at the strategic level, understanding the larger concepts, moving down to the operational level, and then moving down to the tactical level. Only when you can cross all three of those together are you actually effective, at least that's my opinion. Good advice, I think, for the uh, security and military challenges that we face today. Well, on that note, I want to thank you again, Tom Quiggan, for, for sharing your experiences in Bosnia, and I appreciate you chatting with us here at the International Spy Museum. Thanks, Mark. It's been a lot of fun. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.